0: Section 66 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow Female Poisoners Part 2 A Famous Kansas Matricide frankie morris alias mrs a a Hurd, alias mrs h d loveland a woman of somewhat over thirty years tall graceful of striking personal appearance and of unusual intelligence and animation was accused of murdering her mother mrs nancy j poinsett by means of poison administered in a glass of beer november fifth eighteen eighty four to obtain the sum of fifteen thousand dollars insurance on her life Mrs. Morris, as she called herself, and her mother, formerly lived in Erie, Kansas, where it is reported she met a young man named Cinnamon, who won her affections and then betrayed her. From this time forward, her career was singularly eventful. She was next heard of as the mistress of a house of ill fame in Great Bend, Kansas. Here she met A. A. Hurd, a rising young attorney, who, like many others, was ensnared by her extraordinary power of fascination in a few weeks he was completely under her domination and in the course of a year he married her they removed to topeka kansas where are situated the general offices of the atchison topeka and santa fe railroad with which mr hurd became connected as general attorney for the state of kansas mrs hurd's former discreditable history not being known in her new home she was enabled to move in respectable society in the capital city of the state and for a while everything apparently went on smoothly. Her husband had a good salary, and with plenty of money at her disposal, a favorable opportunity was offered to make amends for her past life. But she did not seem inclined to take advantage of her good fortune. She wearied of the tameness of domestic life, and longed for the freedom and excitement of her former career. She and her husband lived unhappily. As she said on her trial, she occasionally cursed him, and it was apparent that it was but a matter of time when they would separate. Anticipating this outcome, she determined in some way to bind her to her fortunes by stronger ties than at that time existed. She became sick, and concluded to visit Hot Springs, Kansas for improvement in health. While there, she was attended by a well-known physician, who had among his patients, at the same time, a woman named Foster, who gave birth to a child, and, not wishing to keep it, Mrs. Hurd offered to take charge of it. On her return to Topeka, she palmed it off on her husband and friends as her own. But even this ruse, though successfully worked, was not sufficient, and in 1883 a divorce was obtained in the Shawnee County Court by agreement. The restless Intrigante was not idle in the meantime. Among those with whom she came in contact in Topeka was a promising young man named Loveland. He was happily married, had a pleasant home, an attractive family, and a paying business. As soon as he became acquainted with Mrs. Hurd, he appeared to lose all interest in his home, family, and business. He was devotion itself to the charmer, and when she obtained a divorce, he became her lover, according to the testimony in the case, although he was married to a wife who was a highly educated and beautiful woman. In his blind infatuation, he neglected his family, several of his children died, and at last his wife, broken down in mind and body with the shame and disgrace that her faithless husband had brought upon her, became insane, and was taken to an asylum under the laws of kansas this was a sufficient ground for obtaining a divorce and loveland was separated from his wife in the sedgwick county court soon after the divorce was granted to mr and mrs hurd according to the testimony on which she was convicted the latter who had taken the name of frankie morris appears to have conceived a plan to obtain a large amount of insurance on the life of her mother The first move was to induce her mother, Mrs. Nancy J. Poinsett, an old lady keeping a boarding house at Cherryvale, Kansas, to take out a policy of $5,000 in the Mutual Life Insurance Company of New York. The policy was secured through the instrumentality of the defendant's divorced husband, and the first premium was paid by him out of the money due her as alimony. Mrs. Morris was, at that time, living in Topeka she moved to Kansas City and in a few weeks made her appearance in the office of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of New York. She expressed a desire for a policy on her mother's life for $10,000, herself and child to be the beneficiaries, and eventually a policy for that amount was issued. It is stated that applications were also made to several other companies, but for some reason not made public, they were declined. Frankie then proceeded to complete her plans. Her mother was persuaded, against her own wishes, to move from her home in Cherryvale, where the family was well known, to Chanute, on the plea of getting a more desirable location. Before they had been there very long, Frankie proposed to celebrate the election of Cleveland on the 5th of November, with Kansas beer. A boy was sent out for the beer, and on his return, he delivered it to Frankie, who obtained a glass from a cupboard nearby, and pouring out a portion, gave it to her mother she herself drinking from the bottle. In a very short time, Mrs. Poinsett exhibited the characteristic symptoms of arsenical poisoning, and soon afterward died. The attending physician, it was alleged, appeared to be under some sinister influence, and withheld statements which should have been made in his certificate. For this inaction or concealment, it is also said that he afterward narrowly escaped indictment by the grand jury. On the day after the burial of the victim, application for payment of the insurance was made with indecent haste. This hurried action aroused suspicion. Investigation followed, and Frankie was held for the action of the grand jury. Dr. E.H.S. Bailey, professor of chemistry in the State University at Lawrence, was employed to make a chemical analysis of various organs removed from the body of Mrs. Poinsett. He found, in the stomach, liver, and other viscera, arsenic in much more than sufficient quantity to prove fatal. In due time, the grand jury found a bill of indictment for murder, and the case came up for trial at Erie, Kansas, August 4, 1885. The chain of circumstantial evidence was ably presented in the Neosho County courtroom before Judge Stilwell, in the examination of witnesses, and in the summary before the jury by the prosecuting attorney, C.A. Cox, and his colleague on the part of the state, C.F. Hutchings. After a patient hearing, which lasted a week, the jury brought in a verdict of murder in the first degree. On the 7th of September, application was made for a new trial. The grounds were flimsy, the most prominent being the use by the prosecutor of opprobrious expressions outside of the record and unwarrantably prejudicial to the defendant. The spell exercised over the contestants by the siren was amazing. On the thirtieth of November, when the case came up for a rehearing, a nolle prosequi was entered and an order of dismissal gave Frankie her freedom the representatives of the companies involved major t c caskin of the equitable life and mr d c Gillette of the mutual life addressed a letter to the prosecuting officer of neosho county charles a cox in which statements and comments occur that are essential to the completion of this narrative they said although in the public prints and throughout the state we have been represented as having incited this prosecution of publicly and to her face threatening mrs morris with indictment and arrest if she attempted to recover under her policies No one knows so well as you, unless it be her attorneys, that never have either of us seen, written, or spoken to either Mrs. Morris or any or either of her attorneys, or authorized any such communication for us for the companies we represent, nor have the companies by any other so communicated with her or hers, nor have we ever uttered any public threat or privately indulged in malice or vindictiveness.' You and others are our witnesses that, from the moment the facts were placed in your possession upon which we based our opinion that Mrs. Poinsett had been poisoned, and you so quickly saw your duty, and in such a manly way moved along its unpleasant path, we have never intruded even a suggestion. In your own good time, and according to your opportunities, you led the case, from the presumption attending the circumstances of mrs poinsett's death to the indictment arraignment trial and conviction of her daughter for murder we asked no more of you than the people or than all good citizens have a right to expect that you should do your duty and you did it nobly in accordance with the forms of law and the usages of the courts you asked of us help and we gave it you desired that mr hutchings should be retained to assist you And he was, at your request, so retained by us and stated in open court precisely the circumstances attending his presence in the case and the attitude of the companies towards it. Our interest was not pecuniary. It is not so now, or at least the pecuniary elements involved are so trifling that without them our course would have been the same. Our business had unfortunately supplied the motive for a dreadful and unnatural crime. Such a crime against life, law, order, and the homes and hearts of society as to defy belief if conviction were not forced upon us, and similar deeds did not crowd the records of the courts. We represent two associations, paying, on an average, $1 million a month, year in and year out, to the legal representatives of those who die of our membership and mrs morris would have been of the number of our beneficiaries long since if we could have had the slightest doubt of her guilt or the faintest excuse in law or equity as mr hutchings so ably stated a principle is at hazard one that threatens the fundamental rights of every individual or association of individuals whether a cruel cold-blooded murder can be done for money and those who are the victims people and property be compelled to sit calmly by with folded hands and say to the fiend thy will be done we know or if we do not the noble array of attorneys for the atchison topeka and santa fe railroad company marshalled in groups for the defense can tell us that we are two wealthy corporations albeit our principle is benevolent and our reward honorable and therefore we must partake of the strange perversion of the public moral sense that applies a different law to our wrongs than that to an individual but the jury in this case did not so consider they saw no difference between the inherent rights of one or many and recognized the principle that brought us into the prosecution they recognized more than that They saw that there was no difference between this and any other murder, except in the pitiless manner of its execution, and the wolfish greed of the motives. And we venture to say that not between the lids of all recorded trials can be found its parallel for open infamy, for its disclosure of domestic infidelity and incontinence, for the exhibition of wrecks of human character, or for illustrations of the perversion of the law and the undisguised array of perjury and moral filth. The verdict came and was hailed as a triumph of justice rare in these days of expediency and quibble. There had been some mutterings of discontent and alarm when, upon the arraignment, the court, in its discretion perhaps, fixed the bail of the accused, which, however, she could not furnish, and in consequence awaited her trial in jail. But the verdict silenced all criticism, and the conduct of the court acquitted it of all undue clemency. Mark the change. The motion for a new trial was in order and a day set for its hearing. Active preparations were begun by counsel for both sides. Argument was made and decision rendered. That decision and what followed mark an era in the trial of capital offenses in Kansas. There was not an intimation that the accused was not guilty. The honored court saw no evidence, no error of law, no virtue in the exception cited, no admission of irrelevant testimony upon which a new trial could be granted. But out of his memory, his honor plucked the tardy consciousness of opprobrious epithets and expressions employed by the prosecution when addressing the jury, which, although not objected to at the time by either court or counsel, were outside the record and had a tendency to prejudice the jury against the accused. When, since there were trials, has it not been the sworn duty of prosecuting officers to find cause of conviction and to press that cause with all their might upon the jury? Or when did previous good or bad character of the accused cease to furnish the strongest presumption of innocence or guilt? but such a decision was apparently only preliminary to what followed. The court then admitted the prisoner to bail, which was furnished, and she left the August presence. Section 9 of the Bill of Rights of the Constitution of the State of Kansas provides that all persons shall be bailable by sufficient sureties except for capital offenses when proof is evident or the presumption is great. Proof had been taken in open court, and presumption had become conviction. There was no discretion anywhere, not even in the law. The prisoner's place was in the jail, and every man in court knew it. We are not surprised at the tales we hear of your discouragement when you see the fabric of your great labor for right and law fallen to ashes." Or that, as we hear, the county commissioners hesitate involving the county in debt to set up houses that will not be allowed to stand. And we comprehend how, yesterday, the defense stood with brazen front, surrounded by its witnesses, while the state looked around in vain for a friend. If either counsel, mindful of the honor and dignity of his profession, could contemplate the predicament to which the court had reduced a faithful and successful servant without shame and sorrow, nothing but an equal slight could stir his sense of right or wake his alarm for the fate of the law he practices. We do not believe that the people of Kansas, young though the commonwealth is, will long submit to such methods and indignities. The time must come when crime will not excite admiration when criminals will not hold receptions in gorgeous toilets and trip gaily to their homes after kissing their hand to the judge and jury. We see the dawn of a nobler day in the conviction in this case, when, before an upright and fearless jury, in solemn trial, to which the defendant and her counsel came with wine, women, and laughter, as to a carnival, and were rebuked of justice and an outraged people, however much they now triumph. But we are with you as before if, out of the chaos and wreck, you see wherein we can serve the state. We are not the public prosecutors. We do not assume such office. This is, and must be, a prosecution by the state in which we cannot dictate nor direct. Such aid and support as is due from every law-abiding and law-respecting citizen we stand ever ready to furnish, and if consistent with your duty, we should be pleased to know your purposes in the matter. The disgust and indignation with which the community regarded the escape of the woman were clearly typified in the newspapers of the day. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch, for example, said, The facility with which new trials are granted to persons convicted of murder makes it necessary to provide by law for the preservation of evidence. Frankie Morris, formerly an inmate of a cowboy dance house at Dodge City, a woman whose life has been notoriously wicked and cruel, was convicted by the most conclusive evidence and by the unanimous verdict of an unprejudiced jury in Kansas of having poisoned her old mother with arsenic to obtain $15,000 of insurance which she had taken out on the old woman's life obtaining a new trial on some flimsy pretense her friends have managed to get two of the most important witnesses against her out of the reach of the state authorities and in the absence of the essential witnesses the prosecution has had to dismiss the case against her thus justice is baffled and defeated in one of the clearest cases of murder in the annals of crime Yet all the constitutional requirements and all the requirements of a fair trial were complied with when those two witnesses had once given their testimony in court confronting the accused. An official record of that testimony, preserved by law for use in any new trial granted, would have prevented the defense from using the merciful concession of a new trial merely as an opportunity for defeating justice by spiriting away or murdering witnesses. End of section 66.